we're going to start. Hosea, is that really loud or is it me? Is it loud? It's loud. Is that better? I think that's better. Thank you. Uh, Hosea chapter 6 is where we're... Let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we pray your blessing upon our time together in Sunday school that we would uh, be mindful of your word and mindful of our own humanity and our own tendencies uh, and the way we deal with the text of Scripture. Help us always to be faithful to you. Thank you for a long heritage of people who really struggled and labored and toiled Uh, to exalt and honor you in every part of life. We pray your blessing on our life and our church in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Hosea chapter 6 and verse number 7. I want to read just one verse this morning. We're, of course, doing more history than we are theology um, at the moment. Hosea chapter 6 and verse number 7. And we're going to read it. I'm just going to make a couple of comments, and we'll come back and bring it into the Sunday school lesson here in a little bit. Hosea 6, 7. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. They, like men, have transgressed the covenant. And if you're sitting there this morning with an ESV in your hand or a New American Standard Bible, then you know the verse reads this way. But they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. And the very simple answer for that, folks, is that the word Adam and the word man are virtually indistinguishable in the Hebrew language. They are one and the same. And that is going to matter in a little bit when we talk about where we are this morning. Broadly, we're dealing with what I'm calling major religious influences in America. And my premise is that what we believe, we do not believe in some kind of a vacuum. Uh, that what we believe, we believe in a certain context. And I'm not saying that we don't believe the Bible. I'm saying that we bring the Bible to bear on things that are going on in the world or things that have a historical connection. And this is a reality. And, and part of our wisdom, I think, needs to be learning to recognize that. Um, that we, like every other group of people, are interacting with the scriptures, not just purely, but with the, within the framework of our own experiences, expectations, and cultures. And so what I want to do this morning is deal with one of the earliest of the colonial religious controversies. Um, it is called the antinomian controversy, and you're perhaps familiar with the word, with the with the phrase, antinomian refers to being against the law or in place of the law, really. And, and we tend to think of it as, or if we think of it, perhaps we think of it along this way, 
that somebody who is antinomian is somebody who is against all rules, all regulations, some kind of anarchist, some kind of godlessness. But that is not at all the way that it was used here. Um, It took place in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And it took place over the years about 1636 to 1638, so almost 400 years ago. And uh, so the Massachusetts Bay Colony, I just want to begin by going back and revisiting a little bit of the, of the, of the history. Um, uh, Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Bay Colony covered most of modern-day Massachusetts. Uh, the southeastern tip, if you look at the map, the funny-looking part to us, uh, is, where the, um, is where the pilgrims were, the Plymouth Colony. Uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony included uh, major, the major city of Boston, which would become a leading center in its day, um, and also Salem, where the witch trials were held. And we're not going to talk at all about the witch trials. They were uh, an unfortunate, ugly episode um, in history, but, but they don't, we, don't, we just wouldn't go down that road. It would not really have any bearing on us. We would, we would not conduct ourselves in that way. Uh, and one of the reasons that I wanted to deal with this, and admittedly, folks, it becomes at times very complicated, um, especially to those of us who look at it for, as an out, from an outsider's perspective. But the issues at stake are issues that keep coming up 400 years later. We are, we are not fighting the antinomian controversy as the Puritans did, but we are still addressing the issues that they addressed. And I hope that we can see that as we go. Another one of the reasons that I wanted to tackle this is that the, the, the concept of Christian nationalism is making a big resurgence. And it's not only making a big resurgence in churches, it is making a big resurgence in the world. And when the world takes note of something that Christians are doing, it is worth noting that the world is paying attention to us. And you probably know that a movie has been made recently uh, denigrating it, and, and it's become, of course, highly critical. And part of the reason for that is that the world fully understands, as do Christians fully understand, what is at stake. Uh, Christian nationalism, you could argue, first took over Europe. <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the church after Pentecost began to move from the east always to the west. Paul wanted to get to Spain which was really about the outer known edges of his world at that time. He wanted to cover the globe as he understood the globe to be. Um, And then Christianity, of course, did come to Europe. Um, And then a form of Christian nationalism is being attempted by our Puritan forefathers. Uh, They want to establish a Christian colony. And that that is their goal. (laughs) And, And... what happened to the, to the effort, and we'll talk about this next week because within 30 years of establishing the Massachusetts Bay Colony and its attempt to bring Christianity completely to this new world and wilderness, it was an utter and abject failure. 30 years. 
30 years, and it was, it was a completely undone experience. Um, <clears throat> were we to accomplish it, by the way, this would be, this is just Kenny Largent's judgment. Um, <clears throat> if, we could, if we could achieve Christian nationalism in America in 2024, it would end the same way. It would come to the same end. On the other hand, and this is not really part of the Sunday school lesson, uh, if the radical left and their anti-God sentiments have their way, it will do the same thing. Because here is, folks, what appears to be the biblical reality. And that is, dominant religion will never tolerate any form of competition. And so the Puritans... refused to countenance any kind of religious competition. And the secularists, although they would deny all day long that they are religious, will not tolerate any form of competition. And this is just the way sinful human beings are, and we see it in the Massachusetts Bay Colony as well. All right, so Massachusetts Bay, and again, let me just remind us that we need to understand there is a distinction between the Pilgrims and Plymouth Colony and the Puritans and Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Pilgrims are true separatists, and they have risk being viewed not only as religious outcasts but as criminals for the sake of their religious practices. And the Puritans are viewed as religious outcasts, but they will not repudiate the Church of England, because they believe that it can be salvaged. And so there's, that's a whole part of the history and ultimately the tension. So the Massachusetts Bay Colony is established by the Puritans in about 1630. They are officially identified with the Church of England, although they have distanced themselves from it. And that's a whole part of the tension of their relationship. Um, their view is that the Church of England needs to be freed from all of its Roman Catholic influences, and this is proving increasingly difficult. Um, Charles I is the king who grants them permission (coughs) to go, Um, but Charles I is also the man who had appointed to be the head of the Church of England a man by the name of Laud, L-A-U-D, and he was then second only to the kingdom, to the king, for authority in the land when it came to religious matters. And he was viewed as being very sympathetic to Roman Catholicism. Um, <clears throat> without, again, going into all this, the Church of England ultimately kind of divided itself or was viewed as divided as having three different spheres that were vying for power. There were the high church Anglicans, which were the people who were sympathetic to Roman Catholicism. There were the low church Anglicans who wanted to be full Church of England without the Catholicism. And there were what is known as evangelicals. And these were people who were, would be much more in line with us than with whom we would have a great deal of sympathy. Part of the division, and this is going to be an inescapable part of our conversation, Part of the division between the high church Anglicans and the low church Anglicans, between the Roman Catholic sect and the Church of England sect, is their view of Calvinism. The the high church, the Roman Catholic people, are very clearly viewed as Arminian, 
in all of its forms, which is that virtually God made salvation possible, but virtually the entire rest of it falls upon your shoulders, both to obtain it and to keep it and to lose it, if you want, versus the Calvinists who did not believe that at all. And we, of course, will come back a little bit more to that. Charles granted to the Puritans a legal charter, and, and every colony had its own unique legal document that gave it existence and that gave it permission. And you could own part of a colony, colonies that were stock colonies, were colonies that were held by Englishmen who had permission from the king to do this. So just like, I mean, along the same lines, uh, not exactly the same, but just like you can buy some Microsoft stock or some Apple stock and become a shareholder, you could put money into the stock of this company, this plantation or this colony, in the hopes that you would make profit from it, that it would be a financial gain for you. One of the very common denominators to these charters was that on an annual basis, the share owners had to meet in London to have an annual meeting. And in doing this, this gave the English government better control over what was going on in the colony. One of their representatives, right, the king had all authority. One of the king's representatives would attend this meeting. There would be reports on what was going on business would be transacted, but the Puritans managed to not have that put into their charter. And so they were not required to go back to England or to have representation in England for the government of the colony. Here's what, man, here's what one author said. The men reasoned that if the company continued to meet in England, the king could find things to quarrel about and could possibly take back the charter. This had happened to the Virginia Company of London. Taking the charter with them to America would remove much of the king's power to interfere in their affairs. The company could erect a self-governing religious commonwealth. It would allow the leaders to create the kind of society they wanted, a city of God in the wilderness. And so that was the goal, and that was all part of their workings to secure this charter was to be virtually free from British interference. Now, historically, that will not work. And in the 1680s, the king will come in and take over all this territory, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, one of the main leaders of the Puritan colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, was a man by the name of John Winthrop. And uh, they wanted to establish a theocracy, a theocratic-type government. And they wanted to limit all voting rights only to those who were members of the church. And uh, not every member, but basically only men who were free, uh, civically, societally free, not indentured servants or slaves, um, and <clears throat> who were property owners. And then they could vote in governmental affairs. So this is their goal, to establish this totally Christian community, a group of Englishmen who are faithful to God and faithful to the Bible. And the belief is that God will then bestow so many blessings upon them in their labors that they will become the envy of England. And they don't mean envy in a sinful way. They mean envy in a good way. That, that what, what they hope, right? They have been unsuccessful 
in their efforts in England to purify the church. They have not been able to eliminate the Roman Catholic influences. So we will come up here and we will come over here and we will establish a parallel colony of Englishmen who love the king and love God and demonstrate what we should be and enjoy the blessings of God to such an extent that England will want to follow us and we will be a light, right? We will be the city on the hill. And this was, and, and again, folks, just think about, think about the level of commitment that it took for these people to do this. And I am not trying to be funny, but, or facetious or sarcastic, but what in this world would be of such value to you that you can imagine giving up modern conveniences like indoor plumbing, central heat, and cell phones to pursue them? Because England was one of the most advanced countries in the world, and New England was a forest, and there was nothing there. Whatever would be there, they would build. Right? No criticism of the Native Americans, but they were not civilization builders. They lived on the land, they used the land, but they were not civilization builders. The civilization as we know it would be built by these people who gave up everything to come over here. So uh, you, can, you can find it if you care on the internet. John Winthrop preached a message to that end from Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 14 that mapped out the potential blessings that awaited them versus the pitfalls that would befall them. And the pitfalls were many. One of the later successors to the Puritans, a man by the name of Cotton Mather, said of his Puritan ancestors, uh, he said, the, the, um, how, did, how did he put it? And this is not going to get it exactly right. Piety bred prosperity. Piety gave birth, piety gave birth to prosperity. And now the daughter hath consumed the mother. And that's, that's the characteristic of the worldliness of the New England colonies by the late 17th century. Continue, so back to the Puritan colony. Continuing a pattern that is part of this Christian nationalist mindset, part of the medieval European mindset, courts not only deal with what we would call civil matters or literally the last six of the Ten Commandments, Courts would be established to deal with the first four commandments, the commandments relating to the worship of God. So this is the nature of the colony, and we've already kind of talked about this. What would you expect their attitude to be then towards those who disagreed with them? And the answer, folks, is complete and absolute intolerance. So that the Quakers, who could be very troubled causing people were just told to leave. Uh, the Baptists were not tolerated, and, and if they were tolerated, they were not going to be allowed to vote because you can't vote unless you're a member. Uh, I mean, right, this is a stretch, but it's, it's not entirely a stretch, folks. Imagine if you could only vote if you were a member of the Democratic Party. Or conversely, imagine if you could vote if you, only if you were a member of the Republican Party. Otherwise, you're not allowed to vote. 
You can imagine how frustrating that would be on the outside, and you can imagine what it would do to an election, because here's a man who, at heart, is, let's say, a Democrat, but he has to belong to the Republican Party, so he joins the Republican Party, and then every chance he gets, he votes for the Democratic position. But this is the world that they inhabit. And the antinomian controversy is one of the many tests that they faced on this kind of thing, in which their theological position, which is difficult, comes into conflict with people and their practices, which are equally difficult. Right? Let me just give you some names. These kind of are the main characters. John Winthrop, who is the civil governor of uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony. He is a very devout and religious man. He is a godly man, but he is not a minister and he has not been trained in seminary or theology. Uh, another pastor, a man by the name of John Cotton, <clears throat> who was recognized as one of the leading preachers and ministers of the Puritan world, who had developed a tremendous reputation in England and who came to the colonies and who pastored a church and who was by all accounts Right? I mean, he would, be, he would be like the Spurgeon of his day. He would be a man of John MacArthur's stature and caliber in our day, a man to whom so many people looked for guidance and leadership, a tremendous speaker, and a woman, a woman by the name of Anne Hutchinson. And Anne Hutchinson is going to be the representative of the dissenting position. And this is... These are the people and characters around whom this antinomian controversy is going to revolve. <clears throat> all right, so let's, let's just try and, and again, right, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just, I, I have just done so much reading on this and, and you just, some of it is just going to be lost on us because we do not breathe that air on a regular basis. It is not a part of our world, okay? <clears throat> As part of the Puritan mentality, right? Here we are. We, we sitting in the auditorium this morning constitute the entirety of the Christian population of the known world, and which is not in because there are other colonies, but let's just go with that for now. And our goal is to establish a civil government that will be a model to the world about the blessings of God in light of obedience. Now we hold to a pure and true Calvinist doctrine. And you know that Calvinism is often taught in terms of the, the word tulip, the T being total depravity, right? <clears throat> the L being limited atonement, the I being irresistible grace. If God calls you to be saved, you cannot, you cannot resist, and the perseverance of the saints. And the U stands for unconditional election. Now, when, when in the 21st century, in a Baptist church like ours, we have a conversation about Calvinism, whether we're having it in friendly terms or unfriendly terms, we are almost always talking about the limited atonement portion of Calvinism. Can everybody be saved or can only a few people be saved? And depending upon how you're going to view the whole issue and interpret it, you're either going to view that as 
God being very unfair and arbitrary, or actually you're going to argue that those who hold that position are very wrong because that is not God's position, or something along those lines. Those, are, those tend to be the... And, and by the way, and we will come to this, uh, <clears throat> but I think, I don't know that I would die on this hill, but I think that I would, I know I would be comfortable in saying this, that probably nobody more so than the Baptists drew that line very clearly. Because the Baptists as a denomination very quickly divided itself into a general Baptist side. Christ died for everybody. And what was known as a particular side. Christ died for the elect. And so to this day, folks, Baptists are generally either general in nature or they are particular in nature. And Baptists have just, right, kind of embraced the the conflict and taken the label in any event. That's the way we would view the argument. The antinomian controversy wasn't about the limitations of the atonement. The antinomian controversy was about the fact that Salvation was unmerited, or as it's put in the tulip, unconditional election. What does unconditional election mean? Well, it most certainly means, at a very minimum, that God did not pick you because he saw that you first picked him. Otherwise, it wouldn't be unconditional, would it? But what unconditional election really means is this. Nothing that you do can incline God to pick you. Nothing that you do can incline God to pick you. So to be a Puritan, folks, there is a sense, I would argue, and of course, I'm not a Puritan. And I'm, I'm, although I would, if Christian nationalism came, I would rejoice, but I, I'm not sure that I can officially support it. It seems to me that the Puritans have boxed themselves into an untenable position. We are going to have a Christian community who can be saved, only those that God chooses. Well, what what about if out of our assembly that is here today, God only chooses, let's say, this side of the auditorium? What do we say to this side of the auditorium? And what the Puritans said was, we don't know who God will choose, and therefore, everybody has to live by the law of Moses. And so the law of Moses, in effect, became the law of the land. And everybody has to live it. These are the demands that are levied upon you. So that fundamental to the conversation, right, is the role of works. And, right, so, so don't tune me out and don't lose me, folks, because this is the part that we are still talking about 400 years later. What is the role of works? What is the role of works? If somebody makes a profession of faith 
and not one portion of their life has any evidence of Christianity, does that mean anything? Can you make any judgments about them on the basis of that? On the other hand, suppose that somebody is very well behaved, very respectful. When they come to church, they look like they have dressed to come to church. They have a Bible in their hand. They sing the songs. Does that mean they are saved? How do we know? Can we know? Are we supposed to know? But folks, if we have a whole series of courts, or at least one court that is designed to look at and inquire into and decide on religious matters, then we're going to make judgments about those things. This is what is going on. And this is one of the reasons that I read Hosea chapter 6 and verse number 7 this morning, because... The Puritans were, you've heard the word many times, the Puritans were not simply Calvinists. They were covenantal in their theology. And their covenantal theology position begins in Hosea 6-7. They, like men, have transgressed the covenant. Again, I've already mentioned this, and those of you that have a new, if you have a new American standard or those of you that are looking at an ESV, and those are the only three versions that I looked at. So I don't know, have any, well, that's not true. Because I looked at what the Bible the Puritans were using, which was the Geneva Bible, and the Geneva Bible reads just like the King James Bible. They like men. Now here's the Calvin, or here's the Puritan covenantal position that Hosea chapter 6 and verse number 7 is not referring to men, plural, mankind but is referring to Adam specifically in the Garden of Eden. And that God had made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden that his continuing existence in the Garden of Eden hinged upon his work. That his obedience to the command of God concerning the Garden was what would cause him to continue to live in the Garden perpetually. And you don't really find that in the book of Genesis, but you could make the case, I don't know that they're right, but you could make the case in Hosea 6. That just as Adam violated what is known as the covenant of works, right? Adam got kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of his bad works. And we're not going to let you live in the Massachusetts Bay Colony unless you have good works. And so the laws are going to be that these are the kind of works that you have to do. Now we really hope that you will come to saving faith. And we're eventually going to argue that some of these works, some people are going to argue that some of these works actually produce saving faith. This is where we are in the 1630s. So this, again, all goes back to these, right? And these are the things that kind of make it difficult for us, folks, because 
we generally do not breathe this kind of air, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to insult you. I really am not trying to insult you. But if I stand up here and start talking about Calvinism and election and predestination and reprobation and all of those kinds of issues, the vast majority of people go, that's stuff for preachers to deal with, right? I just want to know how to get through tomorrow when I go to work. But the Puritan world didn't function like that. People had been steeped in this kind of conversation and theology from the time that they were born. And everybody trafficked in it and everybody understood it at some level. So unconditional election teaches that there is nothing that you can do to earn the gift of salvation. And that no man of good works would be inclined to change God's mind towards you. That if he had not elected you, that nothing you did was going to alter his opinion about electing you. And yet, since you don't know, you might as well keep the Ten Commandments anyway. Be good for you, and certainly good for the culture. Winthrop and the other leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony while acknowledging this idea of the covenant of grace and unconditional election, nevertheless made this argument that works do count. Right? I mean, so let's let's just go out here. Let me stop for a minute. Let's just go off on a go out on a on a really skinny limb, folks. If you have been taught from the time you were able to sit in a nursery that nothing in your life is going to impact God's election of you. You're either chosen or not. Is there anything that would stop you from doing everything that you wanted to do? What would, what would, right? I mean, if I'm either chosen or not chosen, then what incentive do I have to live in any kind of, any kind of a moral or upright sense? Do I have any obligation to live in a moral, upright sense? And you could make the argument, well, you live in a civilization, right? So you shouldn't go around killing people because that has nothing to do with religion necessarily. It's just not good for society. But that's not the argument they were making. They had no concept, folks, of the world that you and I inhabit, a secular society. It was only a, it was only a question of what religion you were going to practice. So the, 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 on the one side, you have the argument, yes, we believe in unconditional election. There's nothing that you can do, but your works count. Because your works demonstrate your inwarded spiritual state. So Winthrop argued that believers should go to church, give alms, practice Christian charity, do good deeds as evidence of their election. Not their salvation, but as evidence of their election. And it doesn't hurt anything, folks, we have to be realistic, right? It doesn't hurt anything that when you make everybody live by the Ten Commandments, it generally tends to be a very nice, safe, civilized society in which to live. Even if people don't really believe it, right? It's good for the community. Right? Even, right? So there's a pragmatic side. Even if, even if your next-door neighbor is an absolute unbeliever, 
You'd still rather live next door to somebody who is nice, friendly, reliable, upright, and honest than you would to live next door with somebody who is a thief that you can't trust around your children, trust around an open garage door, trust around your car. This is kind of where the thing goes. On John Cotton's side, Cotton tried to be consistent and argue that if God elects you to be saved, you will become saved and that will be independent of the life that you live. And it's not right to bring these kind of judgments upon people to judge them harshly against salvation or favorably for it simply on the basis of their works. And this is the heart of the antinomian controversy. So that something is engaged in a very public and large realm that you and I discuss on a private basis on a fairly regular kind of situation. You think that guy's really saved? Does the way he lives, should it have any bearing on, on what he does or how we treat him? We have those kind of conversations all the time, folks. We just don't take him to the court. But in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they went to court. And the person who went to court as the defendant is this woman, Ann Hutchinson. Because she was an outspoken critic of Mr. Winthrop and the leadership of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Right? So this is why it's called the antinomian. The, the people like Ann Hutchinson and to some extent John Cotton were arguing against this rigid, legalized form of Christianity that everybody had to follow. Everybody has to live the Ten Commandments. Everybody has to go to church. All babies have to be baptized. All laws have to be followed. All, all of the Ten Commandments have to be followed. Or they are crimes against the community. And the antinomians were the people who went, you just can't really do that to people. You don't know enough to make those kinds of judgments. And those are not right things to do to people. So again, the Puritans have this, what seems to me, right from their sincerity... But in their defense, folks, we live in this same kind of tension, and I'll get to it. I need to, to move on very quickly. Right? And Hutchinson, and, and John Cotton to a lesser level, although if you read the history, John Cotton somehow miraculously avoids getting dragged into this and becoming in any way disfigured, but that is not true of Ann Hutchinson. She is actually brought up on charges. And... <clears throat> Right, so, so we've kind of got this, right, so we have kind of these controversies. To what extent do, does the life you live speak to your spiritual condition? And again, that's not, right, that's not, in this, in the Puritan world, that's not just academic. Right? This is going to determine whether or not you can be a church member. And that means it's going to determine whether or not you can vote in what goes on in the community. So there's really a lot at stake. It's going, to, it's going to impact what kind of position you might have or what kind of job you might be able to get. It is all based upon the kind of life that you live. 
So one of the questions that was ultimately asked is this, do civil magistrates have the right to rule in religious matters? Which, by the way, folks, you, you know the answer to this from the American Constitution. The answer our founding fathers chose was no. No. Congress shall make no law concerning the establishment with respect to the establishment of a religion. So that the government can't operate a religion and then penalize people for not being a part of it. And Hutchinson and Roger Williams, among others, said no. And by the way, folks, I would just point out to you that part of being a Baptist, part of the Baptist heritage is that we have historically said no to that question. One of our main things that makes us a Baptist is we insist upon baptism after salvation. But another big part of being a Baptist is that we say to the government, you go to your circle and we will stay in our circle. And we don't, we don't care that people in government are religious. We just don't believe that our religion is a matter of government issue. We'll deal with people who don't go to church and who don't live right, but we don't think that that belongs to the government. Anne Hutchinson was the daughter of an English minister. She was, by all accounts, completely brilliant, which was part of the problem. And she was something that no woman in her world was really supposed to be. And that was truly, truly in touch with and engaged with the depths of theological debate. Women were, ladies, I apologize to you, but women in the 17th century were viewed as really incapable of grasping deep theological truth. Not that they were ruled indifferent to it, Right? I mean, you know, last week my wife endured a little bit of the football game with me. She understands football. She could, she could talk to you a little bit about football. But she doesn't like football. Now, for me, this is becoming a real challenge. Right? The Super Bowl's coming up. I generally say nothing publicly about football on the Lord's Day. It is the Lord's Day. Right? It's, it's his. But if the Detroit Lions make it to the Super Bowl, I might have to take a sick day. but this is not anything that would ever cross my wife's mind she would just never go there right it's one thing folks to argue that people are relatively indifferent and I think that this is true that in general ladies are more inclined to be relatively indifferent to complex theological theories. That's not the same thing as saying they're incapable of grasping them. But Anne Hutchinson was more than capable of grasping theological minutiae and to add insult to injury, she was better at it than most men. And she just was. She was better at it than most men. She had 15 children. Yeah. And she was also a participant. This is something that became common in New England, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, is that 
People would do their best to make notes of the minister's sermon, and then there would be meetings held in homes, and the minister's sermon would be reread, and people would engage it, not critically, but helpfully. But then Anne Hutchinson committed the sin of criticizing a sermon. And she began to criticize the sermons of the ministers that taught that even though you're not saved, you should still do the good works. And even if you don't know you're elect, you should do the good works because God may elect you. And even though we don't really know that you're saved, you're doing the good works. And so therefore you get to be a member of the church and have voting rights. She criticized that. And in 1637, she was put on trial and she was facing three charges. Um, How am I doing? I'm just running out of time here. Right? Charge number one was a woman exercising authority over a man because she was teaching. Uh, Number two was that she denied the importance of works in the life of people. And number three, she was accused of being a heretic who claimed the ability to know who was saved and who was not. And Anne Hutchinson, I'm not trying to defend Anne, but she made a critical error in that in the course of her prosecution and her defense, she basically stated that she had this kind of knowledge because God told her. And that really is a dangerous thing to say, folks. Right? That really is a dangerous thing to say. That, that God told me who is saved and God told me who is not saved and God communicates to me directly. She was convicted. She was banished from the colony. She ultimately moved to New York after her husband passed away where she was unfortunately killed by an Indian attack in 1643 which John Witherspoon regarded as God's just recompense for the American Jezebel. That was how he viewed her in her death. Now, again, very complicated, very complex, very nuanced in ways that perhaps we just would not appreciate, but they touch upon some issues that we still discuss. Let me go over them quickly. What is the relationship between works and salvation? And we in the Baptist world fully recognize that you will not get saved because of the works you do. But we in the Baptist world also know what it is to look at the way somebody lives and wonder about their salvation. To what extent do works matter and what do we do about that? Secondly, what is the responsibility of an institution? Whether it be a civil government or a local church? What is the responsibility of an institution to enforce religious behavior upon people? And again, folks, this is, right, this is, right, it's a 400-year-old argument that they had, but it's a modern argument that we have. At what point in time does a church cross the line in saying to people, you can't do that, Or at what point in time does an individual believer even cross a line by calling out somebody's conduct? And I would just point out to you, right? I would argue this, that most of us have distinctively much more American mindset about that than we do biblical mindset about that. Our churches are absolutely filled with people who believe that how they live is nobody's business but their own. 
which is completely contrary to the scriptures. On the other hand, I personally am firmly convinced that in many times, particularly in the ultra-fundamentalist conservative Baptist world, churches and pastors horrifically overstep their boundaries with regards to what they expect and demand of people. But that's a subject for another time. Third question, what are the boundaries of religious freedom? How free should you be in a civil society? And you can see, folks, our founding fathers were not men who lived in a vacuum any more than we are. They, they had, their ancestors were these people. The, England was their heritage. The pilgrims and the Puritans were their forefathers. They looked to see how that went. They saw how things denigrated in civil society when the church was running the government, and they didn't want that. Now we're 250 years in, and we're going, you know, it's not going very well when the church has no role in government. And I would just say that always and in all places, we're reminding that there is only one who is worthy to be both the government and the church, and that is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus Christ, not us. And then I hope that we have some, a growing sense of how difficult it is to separate our theology from the reality of the world around us and how oftentimes we are inclined to press for theological conclusions that support things we believe or we would like to see happen. So, all right, I got to stop there. I'm running out of time. There's, there could be much more to say. But next week, we're going to get to something maybe a little more familiar with us where we'll turn our attention to America's first great awakening and some of that came out of that. Okay, we'll be back at 11 o'clock.